2: Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent, Jonathan Ford, our city editor, and Attractor Mooney, our investment correspondent. Down the line from Hong Kong, we have Laura Noonan, our investment banking correspondent. And we're also talking to David Harrow, who is from Harris Associates, Credit Suisse's biggest investor. And our guest here in London is Davide Serra from Hedge Fund Algebris. Down the line from New York, we have Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, who's been in conversation with Avner Mendelssohn of Lumibank. This week, we'll be discussing the activist investor campaign against Credit Suisse, the latest fallout from HBOS for Lloyd's Banking Group, and that interview in the US with Avner Mendelssohn of Lumibank by Ben. So let's go to our first item on Credit Suisse. As the Financial Times reported on Monday evening, the bank has been targeted by a Swiss activist hedge fund. This is the third campaign that this small hedge fund that not many people will have heard of have gone after. The other two haven't been in the banking sector. Well, Laura joins us now from Hong Kong to talk about this. Laura, it might be worth spelling out exactly what's happened here and how the proposal from this activist investor compares with Credit Suisse's current situation.
3: We're about
4: two years on from when Credit Suisse's then-new CEO, Tijan Tiam, announced a restructuring plan for the bank. And his plan was basically to concentrate the bank more around Asia-Pacific, to concentrate it around wealth management, to take some resources away from the investment bank, which at the time was tying up a lot of Credit Suisse's capital and was quite expensive, and then to use that to grow other parts of the bank. At the time, he also wanted to separate out Credit Suisse's Swiss bank, and he was going to IPO that separately. Since then, they have changed their mind about the Swiss IPO, but the rest of it remains pretty much on track. And the idea is that Credit Suisse will be a wealth manager, which will then leverage the wealth management to grow revenue for the investment bank, and they also have a retail bank, and that's pretty much the bones of it. And the Credit Suisse management argument is that the group works best like that when there are lots of synergies from having their various activities all under the one group. In the last couple of days, it has emerged that there is a hedge fund which has built a stake, a pretty small stake at this stage. They were talking about less than half of 8% of Credit Suisse's equity capital But they've built this stake, and what they want Credit Suisse to do is effectively split the business into three. So in the U.S., you would have an investment bank, which would go under the old first Boston brand, which Credit Suisse bought a number of years ago. Then you would have a wealth manager come retail bank, and that would be a separate entity. And then a third entity, which would be Credit Suisse's asset management arm. And they think that they could make it a much more profitable entity by doing this. Now, we've been there, done that, when we think about the investment bank's We've had several campaigns, one in UBS run by I think where they were trying to separate UBS. It hasn't worked before, but when they look at this now, they say that there are some unique advantages to doing it for Credit Suisse at this juncture.
2: OK, well, thanks for setting the scene. I think the bottom line is that these guys have had a successful track record, though limited. But what's different here is there's is a far bigger organisation that they're going after. They've got a far smaller stake. So I suppose it would be useful to hear from a tractor. A tractor, you write about the asset management industry, and you've seen this entity, RBR, go after a big asset manager in Switzerland, GAM. And be pretty successful. What can you tell us about their modus operandi and particularly the individual who heads this RBR business called Rudy Bowley?
5: Rudy is a controversial figure. He is friendly in person but not afraid to criticize individuals as well as companies. And with the GAM story this year, they were pretty aggressive and professional. And I think that's probably one of the key points. They brought in consultants, they developed a huge plan for how they would revamp GAM, which included overhauling its board, cutting jobs, getting rid of the CEO, various different measures. And the proposals actually won support from the big proxy advisors that advise investors out to vote, which is a pretty big feat because it can be hard to get their support. And that was because they said that the proposals were fairly professional. And although they didn't agree with everything, they thought he was making a decent case. So with the GAM story, They did not get somebody on the board, but what they did manage to do was have a revolt over pay. And over the time where they were invested, which was a little under a year period, the share price rose significantly. And the same with Gate Group, which was a company they targeted a year previously. They were pretty successful with that campaign too and saw it being sold off in the end with a 20% premium. So they're small campaigns, but growing bigger by each year. And he has been noisy is probably the best description. He is good at making noise and drawing attention to these companies.
2: Well, he's going to be making some more noise in the coming days. Our understanding that he's due to present his strategic case at a conference in New York later this week, the so-called Robin Hood Conference, organized by JP Morgan. And he's also, we gather, signed non-disclosure agreements with 100 other investors. This would suggest that he's trying to get new investors on board as part of a mission to get a momentum of feeling against Credit Suisse's current strategy and in favor of his own alternative breakup model. Let's go now to Harris Associates and David Hero, who is the biggest investor in Credit Suisse. David, thank you very much for joining us. I just wondered, for many people, this approach by this small, relatively unheard of Swiss hedge fund will have come out of the blue. You're the biggest shareholder in Credit Suisse. Do you think it has any merit?
6: Well, I don't really think there's a lot of merit because Though theoretically it seems to make sense and it sounds good when you get into the details and when you look at the complexity of a business, the businesses underneath the Credit Suisse umbrella, multiple jurisdictions, multiple regulators, and the interdependence on some of the various divisions with one another, from a practical perspective, it would be very, very difficult. And I think, secondly, the new First Boston Corp, which would be the new name of the investment bank, The assumption is that it would have the same valuation as a Goldman Sachs or a Morgan Stanley. And I just don't believe that to be the case. I think the businesses are very different. And Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs have been long-established independent houses. It would be quite a stretch to think that this spinoff could be adequately capitalized and strong enough to compete head-to-head. Yes, there are niches, but I think there's no way that the spin-off First Boston would be able to be ranked in the equivalency of a Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs.
2: Yeah, there's clearly quite a lot of leaps of faith in terms of the valuation. What about the idea of a split up per se? Because there's obviously talk in this hedge fund proposal of a kind of conglomerate dis-synergies. Does that ring true at all to you?
6: Well, not really, because at this stage, there is interdependency amongst the various groups within Credit Suisse, especially in the Asian business, where often an investment banking client becomes a private bank client and vice versa. A lot of these wealthy family groups in Asia who may start, for instance, as a private bank client, then want to float some of their businesses or do something on the corporate side. So there clearly is some synergy and secondly, at this stage, you know, we would just prefer to see the management focused on executing the plan that they developed two years ago. And we're literally 7, 8, 90% of the way through with it. And so I think to disrupt the execution of that plan, which includes moving capital to work and earn a higher return, which includes focusing on businesses which the investment and the investment bank, where they're the most strong and have the greatest unique selling proposition, which includes becoming more efficient and cutting costs, but at the same time growing revenue streams. These are all characteristics of the current business plan that we'd like to see finished.
2: And do you think Chief Executive Tiem then has won over the sceptics? It sounds like he's won you over, certainly, as the biggest shareholder, but do you think he's got the majority of opinion on his side?
6: People need to see results. And I think the good news is over the last couple quarters anyway, we're finally starting to see results. And especially as the SRU, the unit where all the you know, the bad debts and the bad assets are held, continues to be wound down and this should be wound down in the next few years, then we will really see the true earnings power of the firm. And as they continue to gather more assets in Asia and if they continue to stabilize the investment bank, both in Europe and in the US. I think, you know, we're starting to see signs that the strategy that Mr. Tian put in place is is leading to success. And so this isn't just hope. I think we're already started to see this over the last two or three quarters.
2: And the share price performance, I guess, of late has reflected that.
6: Yeah, year to date, it's been better. But I still think there's significant upside. I think the market is failing to differentiate their earnings by subtracting out the special resolution units losses and when those losses are gone and as we continue to grow wealth management and apply kind of a multiple to that business the market will work these things out i don't think the company needs to be broken up to achieve a higher valuation
2: now, Mr. Rudy Boley, who's the gentleman behind this RBR hedge fund, has been doing quite a lot of lobbying behind closed doors, not least within Credit Suisse, but also among the investment community. I gather he's signed 100 non non-disclosure agreements with certain investors. Has he been in touch with you?
6: Yes, but we don't like the idea of signing a non-disclosure agreement and being made insiders because then that freezes us. So he asked if we could talk. He did not tell me the subject matter. And I said, no, thank you. We know him because we were both co-invested in a small Swiss company called Gate Group. And we've been relatively successful working with him to achieve, you know, a better situation there. But I think in this case, there's too many assumptions that are not realistic that go into his conclusions.
2: So a final conclusion, will it go anywhere? Will it achieve anything? Even if he doesn't succeed in his efforts, will it actually galvanize some rethink about the value of Credit Suisse, do you think?
6: I do think the company remains substantially undervalued. So this has brought light to that belief. Secondly, there are some things he brought up which require further examination. For instance, redomiciling the investment bank to a more friendly region where, you know, the capital requirements are so stringent, the regulatory requirements aren't so stringent. You know, some of these things uh, the management should be taking a look at. But I think the general thesis of just splitting the thing up, in my view, is incorrect. But he does have some points that require
2: a second thought. So I guess you'll be urging Tijantiem and others to at least look at some of those good ideas that might be hidden inside the, the bigger plan. Absolutely. Very good. David Hero, thank you so much for joining us. Let's hear now from another investor, Algebris, which is a big financial investor, although not particularly in the Credit Suisse situation, but maybe for a slightly more dispassionate point of view. Davide Serra, their founder and chief executive, joins us on the line now. Davide, hi. The question I wanted to ask you was, why do you not agree with the RBR breakup plan?
7: The reason why I do not agree with the breakup plan is because, shareholders will be worst off, clients will be worst off, creditor will be worst off. So it's a lose-lose. Why it's a lose-lose? Because Credit Suisse is a group that has been formed over the last 100, 150 years. And today you do have a balance sheet. With the current balance sheet, if you were to try to separate the investment bank, the retail operation and asset management, you will actually have to put more capital, not less. And you'll have massive attrition of clients because clients will have an unstable institution all of a sudden, and at the same time, the synergies that can actually be achieved, whether in digital, in product, in running an integrated firm, will be lost. Hence, I think here, the activist has invested in a firm that has three business pillars, and assuming that you create value by breaking it up, it just makes no sense. If what he wants is pure asset management or retail, then he should invest in firms that only do that, like Julius Baer or a pure asset manager. The company Credit Suisse, it's an integrated firm and breaking it up would actually, in my view, destroy value rather than creating it.
2: He makes the argument that there are big dis-synergies in this conglomerate structure and that I think the valuation that he's suggested might be released from breakup would be, in aggregate, a doubling of the valuation, particularly on the wealth management side, which he argues is discounted heavily by being in the same group structure as an investment bank. You don't buy that, though.
7: Well, the issue is the investment bank is still loss-making, in my view, de facto. And so the assumption here runs is that you can value the equity in the investment bank at cash, and hence the wealth management is much more valuable, and hence you should double the value of the overall group. Well, those are two wrong assumptions. The investment bank will never be able to attract cash value. It will require more equity. God knows who's going to ever fund it. And as a result, you, know, you have a big liability in it. So the only way you reduce the liability is actually managing Cutting costs, integrating, serving clients, which is what Dijam is trying to do, similar to what John Crane is trying to do in Deutsche Bank. And the attractiveness of Credit Suisse is that it has this fantastic wealth management franchise and private banking franchise globally, and which is the core jewel of the firm. But you can't just value the good bit and ignore the bad bit. It doesn't work in that way because you have both bits and you can just chuck one
2: off. And what those within the bank would argue, I suppose, is that you need the investment bank to service the clients within the private bank. A final thought from you then, Davide. I don't know if you know Rudolf Boli from RBR, but whether you do or you don't, do you think he's going to have success in rounding up support for his view? However flawed that view might be, will other investors buy into it?
7: So on average, I support activists because there's always you know, a reason why someone is happy to speak up and step up. I think, though, well, in this case, what we are proposing, it's wrong. It's against the shareholder interest. It's against the company interest. And I don't think it will have shareholder support, because shareholders ultimately vote you know, in their own interest. And in my view, this is against their own interest. What he highlights is that there is value in the firm, which I do agree. There is long-term value. But we need two, three years to execute the plan, i give an example. Tijam first thought of floating the retail unit. I thought that was a bad idea, and then he changed course, and he decided to raise capital rather than floating the retail business. Why the retail business is better off inside? Because if you create suddenly conflict of interest between asset management, investment banking, wealth management, what happens is rather than looking at the raw client interest, you're just having people fighting against each other, and that's against both the client and the overall stakeholders. As a result, I think their plan will not float, it won't work. And most importantly, if you were to ask the regulator, the regulator will probably tell you, no way. This is a regulated business, so the ultimate say, it's in the regulator's hands. And I can tell you, being Credit Suisse a there is no way that we'll ever allow a breakup of it.
2: Yeah, as you say, as a GCFI or a so-called systemically important bank, you get much closer regulatory scrutiny than any other bank in the world. A, thank you so much for joining us and giving us your thoughts. Well, let's move on now to our second story, which is a look at an upcoming trial involving HBOS. This is the former Halifax Bank of Scotland bank, which was acquired by Lloyds in the heat of the financial crisis. And Emma, we have this trial starting things on Wednesday, which is brought by disaffected investors. What exactly is the trial all about?
3: Yes, so thousands of shareholders in Lloyds Bank are suing the lender and five former directors in court for £600 million. They allege that the bank did not properly conduct due diligence over Halifax Bank of Scotland when it took over the beleaguered lender in 2008. And these shareholders also believe that the bank and the former directors did not disclose a lot of relevant information for investors within the prospectus. So this includes, for example, a £25 billion loan from the Bank of England that was deemed emergency funding at the time. And just to put this into context, obviously, this takeover was during the financial crisis when Boss was particularly weak and Chancellor Alistair Darning was keen to ensure that the banking system did not face broader systemic risks.
2: OK, it does feel as if this is coming at quite a bad time for Lloyds. Jonathan, you're joining us as a guest this week. Thanks for being with us. And you've done a lot of investigative work about another element of the HBOSS takeover, which has come back to haunt Lloyd's, which is this fraudulent Reading-based non-performing loans unit. Maybe you can just summarise a little bit about that and then maybe talk about how you think this links in with the broader HBOS legacy coming back to haunt Lloyd's. Yeah,
8: well, I think there must be in the back of most people's minds that Lloyd's wish that Victor Blank had never turned up to that cocktail party where he met Gordon Brown and essentially the deal was originally done. And Victor
2: Blank, of course, was the former chairman of Lloyd's who got from then Prime Minister Gordon Brown, as you say, the nod and the wink that this deal would not be blocked by the authorities.
8: Yeah. I mean, essentially, Lloyds inherited in HBOS a bank that was falling to bits, quite literally, during the crisis. And one of the reasons why was that it had embarked on an extraordinary, imprudent burst of corporate lending with a view to effectively substituting for the sort of uh, synergies that were promised at the original merger of Halifax and the Bank of Scotland in 2001. And One of the consequences of that lack of control, or one of the symptoms of it, was what went on in the Reading branch of HBOS, where essentially a group of managers were given an enormous amount of latitude for reasons that have still not been fully explained to extend loans to smaller companies, and indeed medium-sized companies, and effectively, they ended up doing a lot of corrupt deals with a turnaround consultant and running off with quite a lot of the proceeds and not all of which have been recovered. Now, in terms of, you know, the problems for Lloyd's with this story, I mean, clearly this is all a long time ago, but the victims in this Reading fraud were never compensated and they were effectively left dangling for a decade. So you still have a lot of very angry people who feel correctly that they were cheated, who are angrily denouncing the management employees and asking to be compensated. And that process hasn't completed. So how this feeds into this situation with the trial is obviously... A lot of the victims are looking for information to come out of this trial which will provide further evidence that not only was, as we know, HBOS an extraordinarily badly run bank, but also that once it was acquired by Lloyds, Lloyd's essentially had reasons not to look too deeply under the stone of what it had just acquired because it was worried that if it did declare after the acquisition that it was a disaster its own shareholders would turn on the management. which is why essentially it all comes back again to the question of who knew what when with the HBOS takeover.
2: Absolutely just to bring Emma back in for a final thought on this Clearly, annoying your customer base and annoying your shareholders is not a great way to run an institution. Has this come back to bite Lloyd's in terms of, I don't know, the share price performance of the bank or anything more tangible?
3: Well, just to put it into context, it's nothing compared to the £18 billion pounds that Lloyds had to set aside to cover the ongoing debacle that is its mis-selling of payment protection insurance. So this £600 million pounds that the shareholders are claiming pales by comparison. However, the ongoing reputational damage that is dredged up by this case is not great for Chief Executive Antonio Horta Osorio, who is desperately trying to draw a line under the legacy scandals that have plagued Lloyds for, well, a decade. And the bank came out of State ownership earlier this year, at which point the share price rebounded. However, it's now languishing at about 66p, which is some way below the price the government paid to bail out Lloyd's when it took a 43% stake in 2008 and 2009 at 72p a share. So I think Mr. Horta Osorio will be looking forward to when this trial ends.
2: In the meantime, I suspect, as Jonathan says, there's likely to be very interesting evidence emerging, which may make a painful hearing for everyone concerned. Thank you both for that. Finally, let's go to our third item, and Ben McClanahan in New York has been talking to Avner Mendelson, who is the US head of Israel's LUMI Bank, and he's been talking to him about the outlook for the bank's business in the US.
0: Avner, welcome. Let's talk about consolidation. You're a sort of low to mid-tier bank. You're uh, roughly 7 billion assets. Yes, just under. And the next threshold, of course, for more severe regulation kicks in at 10. What's your feeling these days about um, growth and, you know, organic versus inorganic growth?
1: We think about growth and organic growth as the main uh, driver for growth for Mm -hmm. us. We are growing at a double-digit rate uh, over the last uh, couple of years, both in terms of our asset size, deposits, loans, and revenues. And we see still uh, a lot of runway for us to continue to grow organically. That's our focus uh, today. But, you know, as a seven, almost $7 billion bank, seeing the sort of the $10 billion threshold there mm-hmm. in the horizon. Do what, uh,
0: what happens at 10, very briefly?
1: As of today, there is sort of a defined change uh, in terms of regulatory supervision yeah. uh, coming from both the FDAC and, and the state that That we are being regulated on, Mm -hmm. uh, which brings a little bit of a different framework of of regulatory supervision requirements that are being raised a little bit from a bar, as well as the consumer bureau uh, oversight that comes into effect.
0: So, you're looking really to crash through that threshold rather than just to sort of tiptoe through it and then accumulate lots of extra costs?
1: We are thinking about that. We still have a a couple of years uh, in the horizon uh, Mm -hmm. before we get there, but I am talking to CEOs of banks who have uh, uh, gone through the, the threshold. Who made the, the jump, whether organically or inorganically, and, and try to understand the implication that they've seen, not just from a cost uh, a structure purely, but also just from, a, you know, operationally, what needs to change, what needs to be in place from the platform mm-hmm. to support a, a prudent crossing of, of the $10 billion mark.
0: So do you have a list of potential targets drawn up oh, in, no. in the Northeast oh, yeah. and across America? No, it's no? Too, too
1: early. Okay.
0: And what about the regulation environment? Because uh, under the old regime, under the, the vice chair of the Fed, uh, Dan Cerullo, uh, I think the, the understanding was that say, if banks wanted to combine, they'd get bigger, they'd get riskier, uh, and it's a menace to the system. Is, is, is that changing under the new regime?
1: I, I would say that I believe, and we're not regulated by, by the OCC, but our, our experience and, and from talking to colleagues, CEOs of banks in our, in our sort of space – we haven't seen such fears from the regulators uh, when it comes to consolidation. I don't think that you know banks that are making a, a twenty or thirty billion dollar banks are becoming a systematic threat for the system. And mm-hmm. neither do the regulators, and they understand the the incentive and and the rationale for making such combinations. I think you know any regulator will look to make sure that in such a merger there's the right platforms for managing risks uh, and, and making sure that the interest of the clients and customers are taking care of yeah but we haven't seen a any regulatory uh, move against such uh, mergers
0: so w- in the absence of a deal and what, what's going to drive uh, the growth what, what has been driving the growth at Lumi? people
1: having the right talent having the right teams and building mm-hmm. the right culture um, making sure you have the right products and focusing on on the sectors and issues yeah.
0: what, what what sectors what asset classes are you looking at
1: so we, we're again we're a traditional middle market relationship driven ba- uh, bank. So mm-hmm. we're we're serving mostly uh, commercial companies with revenues anywhere between twenty and three hundred million dollars, and the value proposition at the end of the day is the people, the service, uh, the ability to tailor the, the solutions, and obviously we need to make sure that we have a, at least a stable stake uh, product uh, offering and technology offering to compete with the rest of the market and with the big banks.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and which sectors in particular? Commercial real estate is, is important, isn't it? So you?
1: commercial real estate, uh, for, for any bank uh, almost in the U.S., and definitely right. any bank in New York area, uh, commercial real estate is, is, is a big part of it. For mm-hmm. us, relatively, it's a little bit lower. It's about 40% of our, our portfolio, but a fantastic uh, growth engine that yeah. has been for us. Uh, we also have a, quite a significant presence in the healthcare, mostly the skilled nursing home uh, oh, yeah. sector across the, s- the country. Is, is that cycle-proof? that 's cycle proof in the sense that it 's less driven by the economic cycle and, and that 's why we like we like mm-hmm. this it 's it's, it's mostly driven by demographic and demand. It is not regulatory proof and as as we all experience today there 's definitely uh, elements that could affect the profitability of this sector and the
0: dynamics going forward, which we are obviously aware of yeah. And with commercial real estate, I mean, it seems every six months, I mean, the OCC, uh, you're not directly regulated by, but it's coming up with warnings regularly about um, overexposures. All
1: regulators. All our, our regulators, we hear it what, from... What's,
0: what's your feeling? Is, is this um, justified, this concern?
1: My view is yes. And, and the reason is, you know, any overconcentration, every rapid growth that you see possesses risks. Even if you can't really define it, put your finger on defining them. You know, we're talking about banks, about right. organization managing other people's money. And increased growth, increased concentration, the uh, hike in prices that we've seen uh, are all potential threat. It doesn't mean you should stop doing business in this sector, but I think heightened awareness and and having the right limits in place Mm -hmm. are critical.
0: Are there any regional markets in particular that you're steering clear of now? We
1: are uh, traditionally have been focused in the markets where we have uh, a presence, which are sort of the greater New York area, South Mm -hmm. Florida, uh, Illinois, and South California We're not staying away of any of those markets. I think there's asset classes, which traditionally we've not been very much focused on, which we will continue not to be, Mm -hmm. such as the luxury high-end residential market and and retail as a whole are two sectors where we're traditionally have been uh, staying away, and and especially in these days and and seeing some of the trends in those markets, we're a little bit more cautious uh, as well. We have a lot of uh, um, clients in the wholesale business, mm-hmm. um, apparel uh, industries, who are all suppliers for uh, big box uh, retailers, and we've been seeing the sluggish uh, performance there over the past three, four, five years. Even if if you really want to uh, look back uh, and see that, and that's obviously creating constraint uh, not just for the retailers but also somewhat for the suppliers. Yeah, and you know, again, you you, you don't need to be a banker or or an expert to. See where the trend is going, where shoppers are going, where are they buying?
0: And just coming back to the consolidation theme quickly, um, w- one of the reasons why the regulators have looked askance at some of these combinations is cyber. I think you know the, the protections uh, in in some cases aren't as good as the, as as, the, as they should be, and of course Equifax recently has demonstrated the uh, the peril of uh, you know turning a blind eye to potential patches that could have could have helped. Um, how much of a concern is it for you on a day to day basis?
1: It's huge, not just because it's it's a top priority for. Our, our regulators, whether it's the FDAC and the New York State, and the, and the, the New York State, um, the Department of Financial Services actually came up last yeah. year with, with you know, more... So you,
0: you're personally signing attestations, are you, that the, your controls are up to scratch?
1: I, apparently I am, yes. <laughs> um, uh, how does that make you feel? Nervous. But I, I have to say I've, I'm nervous not because I'm signing. I'm nervous because of the risks that are right. that are uh, involved there. We're not a big retail bank. I mean, we we, we serve tens of thousands of clients, not millions. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't change uh, still the risk for both the bank's safety and our client safety. The way we, we think about that is is also obviously making sure we have the right layers of protection. A lot of them are human-driven, not just the… The right software and systems to uh, uh, protect or put the firewalls, but mm-hmm. also to make sure people have the awareness and take the right steps that will not create the vulnerabilities or will not create the data leakage opportunities okay. for threats. Uh, but also a, a, a big part, and our regulators are putting a big a big uh, emphasis on it, is the reaction plans. Yeah. Right? What do you do when something happens? How do you quickly react? How do you make sure you, you notify the right parties, whether it's your clients and your regulators? And and what are the mitigant uh, actions that you mm. you take uh, as an organization to you know ensure business as usual can continue, but also protect the uh, safety uh, of your clients and and obviously the privacy of, of their information. But These
0: extra costs are, are there yes another reason to consider uh, doing deals. I, I think generally for, for banks in general, I,
1: I think generally the cost of running a bank um, are are growing, um, both from you know regulatory compliance costs, whether it's the uh, AML. BSA requirement, the customer experience uh, that you want to provide or, th- or your clients are expecting in terms mm-hmm. of technology uh, advancements, uh, data management, cyber, um, talent acquisition, all of those are rationales for creating a, a, a larger scale in the industry. Yes, cyber is one of them. We're fortunate to be uh, have a shareholder, which is uh, Bank Lumi in Israel, which is is a really a leader in the cyber security space. It's a hub for cyber generally in yeah. Israel and, and the bank in Israel is definitely a centre and, and we're trying to benefit from that and, and leverage the capabilities and skills and know-how
0: that the bank has, has built. Great. Avner Mendelson, thank you very much for joining me.
2: Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank all of our guests. That's Emma, Jonathan and Attractor here in London. Laura down the line from Hong Kong. David Sera from Algebra. My thanks too to David Hero from Harris Associates. And Ben in New York with his guest Abner Mendelssohn from Lumibank. Thank you also for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at fd.com/slash/banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye.